It's Tuesday, April 29th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mike Olson, and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hey, hey. Howdy. Lots going on today, including earnings from 3D Systems and a listener question about the future of Apple. But we begin with earnings from Coach. Shares of the high-end retailer are way down today. The big reason for the drop was the 21% decline in comp sales in the U.S., which has been been Coach's biggest market. Guys, why aren't people in the U.S. buying more Coach bags? Can I bags? just jump out in front of this? Yes. And I want to I point out the really funny, like, elephant in the room thing, which might say that Victor Luis, the new CEO, is a little oblivious. Um, there's the negative 21% comps thing, mm-hmm. and he brings up weather and the Easter holiday <laughs> yeah. as contributing factors. Guess what? You don't get a negative 21% comp on a weekend shifts and you get a few snowstorms. Guys, it was really cold this week. You got to work for that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that's, that's worthwhile you know, calling that out immediately because it's going to look really bad if in May when, Co- when Coors reports – you know, something like a positive 15 or 20% like, yeah. of the American comp, that's right. going to really, uh, <laughs> really look bad. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, you know, it's no, no surprise that Coach has been facing um, a lot of issues. There are a lot of headwinds this business is facing, and we've been talking about that, I think, for the last probably year and a half now. Mm-hmm. Um, and by every metric, I mean, the company's quarter was not a good one, with the exception of of their international uh, business, which is actually performing very well in China and, sales. And for some 25. reason, and maybe this is a sign that they're totally off the mark on fashion, the menswears are doing well, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they are becoming a lifestyle brand. Absolutely. Uh, Do you guys own any uh, coach, coach wear? I have a coach briefcase. My oh. wife got me a couple of Christmases ago, and it's actually, you know, it's plain black, so it's not, you know, it's just pretty it's classic stayed, looking. But I mean, yeah. I, I, I like it. Delightful. Um, it's not like we were talking with Anne, the studio engineer here, and she brought up that she was fortunate enough to purchase a purple leopard print mm. coach purse. Just delightful. How for, can, how can sales not, be not going for herself, for, her, for someone yeah. else. For someone um, else, of yes. course. And so, I mean, I think that kind of tells you where you're at with respect to the brand. <laughs> These, you know, there is this perception, whether it's real or not, that they've moved down market. And mm. so, accordingly. You lose traffic among your core customers. You have to give on price because you are appealing to the people who like purple leopard print purses who maybe are not fashionistas. Uh, not that saying. there's anything not wrong that, with that. Not that Anne Henry isn't incredibly fashionable. No, no, but she did buy it for herself. Oh, sure. It was oh, a gift. Sure. Yeah. It was a gift. It was a gift. Um, maybe. Uh, <laughs> in any event, so you know that that's kind of a rock and a hard place mm. with respect to where you are. Um, it'll be interesting to watch, you know, I, I've consistently bashed this this company, and it's not necessarily a bash on Coach so much as it is I don't like the very whimsical nature of fashion. Hmm, yeah. But Jason, Jason's been following this, I mean, much more closely than me. The new Stuart Weavers collection is coming out. It's come out to incredible acclaim among fashionistas. They haven't yet hit stores. Um but you might be nearing an inflection point as, you know, the opinion leaders pull the herd. Hmm. Um you know, tr- tr- my friend Charlie Travers and foolish colleague were talking about this earlier. He's followed the company for a long time too, and and so that'll that'll be very interesting to watch. They certainly have the cash to weather a turnaround. Whether or not they can change customers' perception is the hard thing. Yeah, but, I think Mikey's keyed in on something very important here, and that coaches what coaches essentially done is they're trying to appeal. Uh, to a more mass consumer, you know, as opposed to, you know, we're the $500 handbag guys and, and we're going to have just this core sort of customer. 
I mean, they're becoming more of the $100 handbag, you know, company that, that's got, you know, outlet stores. Hmm. And so when you try to appeal to that larger consumer base, you, you, you take it on the cost side, you take it on the margin side, you, you definitely have people defecting from the brand. The hope is that at some point, uh, you, you gin up some interest from, from more consumers and continue to, to sell that, that coach brand that people like. You know, we've always talked about them making that move to the lifestyle brand. It's, None of that's really taken off yet, uh, and we're waiting until September, obviously, when Stuart Beaver's uh, line is released. And, and like Mike mentioned, it was received, I think, rather well. They were at the New York Fashion Week, I think, which, which, which is gave new it some positive yeah, press. Yeah. Oh, really? Huh. So I would expect Coach to have been there before. I think one, <laughs> one, of the, one, of, <laughs> one of the positives, I think, is you have to give management at least a, a little bit of an acknowledgement here. They've done pretty good on the share repurchase side uh, in picking up those shares – at, at rock bottom prices, they've bought back a significant amount of shares since 2009. Share count's down about 13.2 percent. They do continue to pay uh, a healthy little dividend there, but but yeah, I mean it's it's really September is is the day that you have to look. That's that's the month that we have to look forward to here. And until then, I don't see any reason uh, for the stock to do much else than, than what it's doing right now. Right. I mean, one thing, and and you know, there are two things that you want to be wary of here. The first is, like Jason said, you can't really be both. You can't be that high end. Hmm. And the mass market uh, designer, and moreover, you know, one thing that that was a really strong point in the quarter was international sales, in particular uh, China, uh, Japan sales, X currency were great. Europe was also quite good, and you know, that gets to the second question, which is that if they can't bring these customers back into the U.S. stores, and if you believe that U.S. fashion trends have sort of a halo effect. Does that start to spill over to international? Because international really has been a strong spot for them. Hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot, lot of interesting things. I actually think that, you know, if you wanted to believe that these Stuart Weavers wares are going to get traction, uh, this would be an interesting time to look at the shares. Uh, personally, I, I think there's a lot of risk and turnarounds in fashion, so it wouldn't be for me. But, you know, this is... This is my the strongest endorsement I can give to a fashion company. <laughs> there is a lot of risk there. You're absolutely right. And I think the one the one bright spot there you have to look at is they have set expectations so unbelievably low. Their their forward guidance is is so not good <laughs> that they don't have to do a whole lot to clear that hurdle. And and so that's that's something at least to consider. You know, they they have certainly set those expectations pretty low. And when companies do that, uh, sometimes you know, we talk a lot about companies that when they're victims of their own success, when mm. they have to kind of meet those those numbers that they keep putting up there. You coach, this could be this could be a situation where those expectations are so low it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot to beat them. Uh, and if they do, you know the market might receive it very well because the stock is not uh, expensive by by traditional you know earnings metric. I mean, it's somewhere around the neighborhood of twelve times earnings. I think yeah. today's uh-huh. sell off. So hmm. it, it's. If you're a value investor, if you're looking for a little turnaround or some a little spicy uh, meatball for your portfolio, this could be one to look at. But it's, it's going to depend a lot on on how they turn this thing around. A yeah. ringing endorsement if for turning this thing around. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Uh, in other earnings news, Buffalo Wild Wings were reported the other day. Last quarter, back in February, things didn't look so good. This quarter it looked a lot stronger. Shares are responding nicely. Are you guys? Are you going to the big game? Are you gonna, are you going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings to watch the Super Bowl, the big fight? Are you gonna? You, you know, know, so um, I, I'm probably the most sports agnostic, thirty uh, something male on God's green earth. Uh-huh. But uh, I do like watching a good UFC every now and again, and having a few uh, having a few brews and brews and wings is quite nice there. That being said, mm. um, you know. This story is a very well-known quantity. Uh, 
by the markets and Wall Street. Um, operationally speaking, these guys have been very successful at expanding into new markets and maintaining that box-level profitability. Um, they're guiding, Jason and I were talking, and I don't actually know, but they're guiding for like 1,700 stores right now. That's a pretty tall order. And you know the market, by any stretch, has assumed that that profitability uh, is going to persist. Their previous strategy was they would push into sort of second markets where real estate costs were relatively low, build a hub, and the marketing infrastructure around that. As they get larger, um, that success is a little bit harder to sustain. Um, and you know, for me, and this is just a personal preference thing. Restaurants kind of fall in the realm of fashion, um, mm. where you know, consumer tastes are fickle and fleeting. Um, you know, the the only restaurant stock I've ever owned, and certainly it's 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 too much in vogue right now. It scares me that I continue to continue to own it. Is Chipotle? Mm. Um, so why did why Chipotle then? Why out of all the restaurants out there? Um, well, uh, I've continuously sold this thing on the way up, and it's, <laughs> it's been to my detriment. I bought it way, way back when during the credit crisis. Right. Um, and I do think, operationally speaking, they have one of the more effective models out there mm-hmm. in that you know it emphasizes velocity of consumers. They have relatively limited investment in working in, in working capital because the menu is relatively slim, mm-hmm. and so that enables them from a capacity standpoint. There is something which sustains that profitability. They have a very interesting economic model, um, and so they this- own all of those stores too. I mean, there's a lot to be said uh, for owning all of those stores as opposed to franchising them out because it it gives them not only all the control but really you know all of the benefits of the profitability as well. Mm-hmm. So does yeah. Buffalo Wild Wings have any of those high points that? <laughs> buy it in the first place. You know, it's it's a much bigger box where you've hmm. got you know one of the very things I love about it is they have you know all these TVs, you know like sixty beers on tap or whatever, right. bunch of wings, and um, those things do not. We were talking uh, a location release recently opened in, just outside of DC, mm-hmm. and I gotta think they're paying through the nose for those lease costs. Um, right. You know, it packs it in on a fight night, but still. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's – they – I think that with Buffalo Wild Wings, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're spot on with the growth concern there. I mean, we've talked a lot about this 1,700 stores uh, opportunity in North America and, and somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 international locations. I, I have to question that 400 international locations. I'm just not sure that wings, are wings and beer necessarily American translate uh, internationally speaking as well. Hmm. Um but I mean, you know, what what Buffalo Wild Wings has done really well, um, and, and I attribute you know this to, to really the vision of Sally Smith. She's been a terrific operator of this company, kept them focused um, in, in moving forward. And, and the biggest challenge they had recently was in this new pricing strategy of basically taking uh, one of their biggest risks in chicken wing prices and, and more or less mitigating it by changing the way they they price the offering. And so instead of buying the wings by the quantity of wings, you're buying it by volume. And they've done a great job in communicating this and pulling it off nicely. And so this this quarter's performance um, was noted. I mean, they benefited from a massive tailwind in, in chicken wing prices. And the problem is that can cut both ways. I mean, they, they will hit quarters where they are facing massive headwinds uh, in regard to chicken wing prices. The one thing that uh, you know concerns me, I mean, Buffalo Wild Wings is great for the game or whatever, but it's all located location, location, location. You're not going to catch me going to one for a game because I live on the west side of Fairfax and there's not one near me. Right. You know, and, and I don't want to have to worry about driving there and, and then driving back. And so it, it is one of those things that it's nice when you're near one, 
Um, but they are, they did note that they're having a tougher time now finding the locations for those new stores. And to your point, I mean, are you going to find cheap real estate in Fairfax? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. But I mean, then the 3,000 store goal that they're talking about is essentially all of those other little bolt-on sort of acquisitions. They have that minority investment in uh, Pizza Rev, mm-hmm. which is a little pizza joint, I think, out in Minnesota. So they're looking at different little other restaurant concepts to, to add into that Buffalo Wild Wings family, sort of like you see Chipotle doing with the Shop House and right. Pizzeria Locale. Uh, however, I, I put Chipotle's leadership and concept a, a tier above of Buffalo Wild Wings. No offense to Buffalo Wild Wings. I just think that's a concept that resonates a little bit more with people. It's obviously a little bit more family-friendly because you're not mm-hmm. talking about wings, beer, and loud sports and people getting getting uh, hammered. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I it think that uh, Buffalo Wild Wings has, has plenty of growth ahead. It's just not going to be easy to come by, and the, the stock is, is, is not cheap today. Right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, to give them a little bit of credit, though, we spent a lot of time bashing them. The extent to which they've been able to sustain that unit-level profitability is very impressive. That being said, in terms of the economic model and you know where you see success in restaurants, it is not uh, – the odds don't favor them as much as you would say maybe a Chipotle. And Chipotle, when they're thinking about their, their franchises or their, their pilots, they're keeping that same economic model where they have only a few ingredients. They have that assembly line concept. And so you're able to move customers – and you have relatively limited investment in food. Uh, restaurants spend a lot on that stuff. Yeah, and I, I think that with Buffalo Wild Wings, I'm I'm comfortable with this company with Sally Smith at, at the helm. Uh, if or you know when she decides to step step down, uh, you know I don't own shares of Buffalo Wild Wings, but if I did, I would be very concerned. All right. Moving right along, here's something fun. Bank of America is in trouble yet again. The bank announced that due to an accounting error it has missed for several years, it had reported that it had $4 billion more than it actually does. $4 billion (laughs) more than it actually does. It's like a misplaced decimal point, right? Right. Yeah, that's nothing to Bank of America. That's something to their shareholders who are going to be, who aren't going to have a share or purchase program or dividends. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a little bit of context is in order. First is that these notes are no longer out there. They've since been retired. They're a relic of the Merrill Lynch acquisition, Hmm. which by any stretch, Contained its share of boogie monsters. This is four billion against two hundred thirty-six against a two hundred thirty-six billion dollar book value. Mm. So the notional amount is not a lot. Right. Um, you know, the bigger issue here is the fact that I mean, it's just embarrassing if you're, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're. So they had to go ahead and pull back on a dividend and share a purchase plan before they even started it. Right. Um, and. You know, much as you might want to say, all right, this only affects their tier one capital, which is measure of bank solvency by, I think it was 21 basis points, and it still trades at a substantial discount to book value. Um, You know, you have to ask yourself what else has slipped through the cracks in $2.1 trillion worth of assets. I'm reminded of the Societe Generale Sakjian rogue trader Mm. issue. I think it was, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, um, where he basically, one trader operating outside of management's purview and his role's confines, blew an enormous hole in their balance sheet. Um, (laughs) Nice. And, 
you know, when you hear about, oh, we, we kind of lost track of that $4 billion. Um, <laughs> you got to wonder what else is going on there. Movies I, are made of this stuff, guys. <laughs> movies are made of this stuff. <laughs> Horror movies. I don't think I could think of another uh, more uninspiring stock out there right now. I think I really? said that yesterday. I mean, to me, I look at something like Bank of America, and to me, it's just it's the biggest black box of, of, of just – of an utter mess. I mean, you have no idea what's going on in there. How can you, with as an investor, you and can't look leverage. at that. You can't feel like you're comfortable with knowing what the business is doing and what it's made of, When, especially when management you know, does something like this. I mean, there are just way easier opportunities, way, way better uh, opportunities out there than something like a Bank of America. The risk uh, just far outweighs the reward in this Right. Case, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, Jason brings up a great point in terms of the black box nature black box nature of Bank of America, you accept a lot of that risk in any given large enterprise. There can be some rogue operator who can do some really stupid things Mm. and incinerate your money in the most hellacious way possible. Mm. That being said, um, it's a whole lot worse, or the perspective impact is a whole lot worse, when you are levered 10 to 1. That means for every dollar of unencumbered balance sheet, you have $10 worth of debt. So little mistakes can become large very quickly. Like $4 billion large. Uh, <laughs> all right. And in other earnings news, shares of 3D Systems were down big time today after announcing what I thought looked like a pretty solid first quarter. I like 3D Systems, personally. I think they've got a lot of cool stuff. They've got the Hershey deal, so they're printing 3D candy, which is awesome. They've got... <laughs> this uh, makes no sense to me. Uh, I, I think I'm it's officially cool. officially old. Uh, <laughs> <at the laughs> I'm in my 30s, and I'm old. Um. <laughs> but they've also... Uh, they're, they're in Staples locations now. They're going to be creating parts for Google's new modular phone, the Project Aura. Why are people hating on 3D systems today? Are you guys hating on 3D systems? Jason, do you want? I, I mean, I'm not hating on any of them. I think that uh, with 3D, 3D printing in general, I, I like the idea, and I think the way to invest in this is to own a basket of all of the, the big players. Hmm. So you look at your Stratasys and 3D systems and X1, maybe a basket of all three of those in equal amounts helps you kind of spread that risk around while playing into the bigger trend. But with 3D systems, I think you're right. It, it was a good quarter. I think there was a little bit of a slowdown in uh, or, or Organic growth, which which uh, it, it, I understand why people would be concerned with that. I mean, when you're a company and you you're part of your growth strategy is acquisition. I mean, there's a lot of risk there, and, and I think 3D system has been put on the microscope uh, over the past year with that. But it also looks like they are pushing some of that profitability, some of those sales, some of that sales growth is being pushed out a little bit later in the year into 2014. Mm. Uh, the profitability is being pushed out a little bit further into 2015. And so essentially, they're saying it's it's still on the way. It's just a little further away than we expected. And I think that's what the market's reacting to today. It's just, you know, where they're pushing that stuff a little bit further out, it becomes a little bit, uh, you know, less certain. And, and when you have a a stock that is is you know not it, it's a growth stock right so there are a lot of a lot of great expectations baked into that stock price today I mean it, it makes sense to see some of some of the market fleeing mm-hmm. so uh, yeah I mean I I think the, 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 there's a great point here in that I mean some of this is they said like there was just so much demand that we we couldn't sell or make enough product and that's a first class problem if you indeed have that. Um, that being said, I mean I, and I have no opinion on valuation of this company uh, or the what the the runway is for this technology mm-hmm. one thing that was interesting to me is as jason said they pursued they pursued this roll up strategy and the idea here is basically you go ahead and acquire the ip then you have this razor blade model where you can go ahead and sell the printer and any associated consumable so 
the logical implication of this strategy is that as you continue to roll companies up and you get sort of a critical mass of uh, IP, your R&D should decline because you've acquired, or it should at least scale as a percentage of revenue because you've acquired the, necess- the necessary intellectual property. Mm. Um, and, and maybe they're investing for the future, but R&D is a percentage of revenues. It, it hasn't declined. And that perhaps is the most worrisome thing to me. I don't, you know, they could just be investing for the future and building a better business. But when you have a roll-up strategy like that, you want to see that declining. So I think that's uh, something worth watching because strategically that really points to whether or not management is doing the right thing. Hmm. All right. Uh, last but not least, let's wrap up with an uh, a reader, or a listener uh, tweet real quick. Sorry, let me look this up real quick. Uh, from Malcolm Moody at Cohen76. Uh, he sent this over to us at Market Foolery, and if you are a listener and want to send in your own questions, feel free to do so at Market Foolery. Uh, Malcolm writes, "Hi guys, great show. <laughs> I know Malcolm. <laughs> Regarding <laughs> Apple, does Apple's seventeen billion dollar bond sale in any way affect the repatriation of its offshore cash? <laughs> I have no idea. Mike Olson's already laughing. What do you think? Yeah, no, there, there's a reason that they're doing this bond issue, and it's so that they don't have to repatriate cash. I was say, the effect <laughs> is they won't. <laughs> right. I yep. mean, they don't want to pay taxes on this, and they can borrow money cheaper than just about anything. For some reason." They are considered on par with the Treasury, uh, in effect, at least. Um, <laughs> hey man, I mean, they sell iPhones, right? Those things are forever. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I mean... Technology. Uh, it's pretty much like gold. Yes, yeah. it's, it's great hardware. That yeah. stuff doesn't get disrupted ever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're going to use this cash to do, to do repurchases and pay dividends, and they're not going to repatriate the cash. And, you know, they, there's been a lot of talk about this when you see companies which are redomiciling outside of the country, whether or not... Uh, that's an issue that needs to be addressed, and that, that's a policy question, which I, I mean is outside of my pay grade, so I just won't even – I mean, yeah, I have opinions on it, but I won't bother. Yeah, I mean, to that. get an idea of how much money we're talking about here, there's about $132 billion of Apple's cash and equivalences held in all, uh, overseas. Uh, it's close to 90% of, of actually that, that cash balance. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and so you're going to see this, I think, time and time again. You know, companies are not going to pay that repatriation tax if they don't have to. Um, and honestly, I, I think that DC would would be really smart to to bring a tax holiday into the mix here. I mean, mm-hmm. offer these companies a reason to bring that money back. And and you can say, well, maybe what does what does that do? It pays dividends to Apple shareholders and da 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 da. Well, I mean, let's first of all think about the fact with all of the institutional ownership of all of these different companies that have all of this money overseas. A lot of people are exposed to these companies, and they probably don't even realize it. Well, and that's tax money. <laughs> well, and and, and uh, think about that. I mean, if you're I mean, paying well, dividends, coming, you're going to be taxed. They can bring that money back and spend it on R and D, help create jobs. Do what? But it's 132 billion dollars that is not going to be pumped in our economy in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. It's going to sit there. Right. They're not going to bring it back. And so, if they can offer a bond offering like this, they did it last year. They I mean, it makes perfect sense. Hmm. And, th- and this is this is a theme you're seeing with increasing frequency, what folks are calling tax inversion. And that's a very fancy way of saying that companies are either acquiring their way into foreign ownership or foreign uh, being foreign, do- foreign domiciled. Or many of these countries, companies are actually re-domiciling in foreign, uh, hmm. in, in foreign locales. Um, we have a tax system that incentivizes people to figure out a way not to pay. <laughs> I mean, that's well, the bottom I mean, that's line, right? 
So, I mean, that's, let's yeah, not, so let's, let's uh, you know, if that's the case, I mean, it, it, Apple's not the only one that does this. I mean, there are plenty hmm. of companies out there that have a lot of money overseas. And so, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, yeah, maybe they're, they're skirting the tax system. It's not like they're breaking the law, though. And honestly, I can see the rationale behind it. And if it's just as easy to take out some debt like that, man, why not do it? Why not? All right. Mike Olson, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Party on. As always, people on this program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Anne Henry, the world's biggest Disney fanatic. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.